So Matthew 22, and I'm going to start in verse 23. <clears throat> it says, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. And we'll pray before we continue. Lord, I just, again, want to commit this time to you. Uh, Lord, I just ask that you would just guide my thoughts as I speak this morning. And I just, Lord, I ask that you would um, give each of us a, a heart to hear what you would have for us, that, um, that we would just be willing to, to change our thoughts to match what your word says, um, Lord, that we would draw closer to you through this time, and just that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're reading through this section of Matthew, um, each paragraph basically starts by telling us who it is that he's talking to. And in this case, it says, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Um, prior to this, um, if you go back to even in the previous chapter, verse 45, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. And so that's who's he was talking to at that point, speaking the previous parable was to the, the Pharisees and the priests and the chief priests. And then in this chapter, chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then went the Pharisees, took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. And so here we have the Pharisees, the Pharisees' disciples, and the Herodians. There's different groups being sent to deal with Jesus, trying to trip him up. And in verse 35, in the, in the next passage, when the Pharisees, verse 34, says, when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together, and then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. And so now the Pharisees, like, okay, we got, we got this lawyer, he's good at, double talk and <laughs> he's a good speaker right he can maybe he can trip him up and so it's 
it's this constant barrage of these educated people, these highly religious and influential people who are not happy with Jesus. And they're trying to find fault in something that he says. And they're coming up with every kind of idea and scenario to try to trip him up, to cause him to stumble in some way. And he's got an answer for absolutely everything they come at him with. And they don't know what to do. And it says, you know, the end of what we read this morning, verse 33, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. It's like these guys, like, okay, that's not the answer we thought we'd get. (laughs) Because these guys thought they had something that that he wouldn't be able to answer. I think it's interesting. You get the Sadducees here, and they've got this doctrine that they don't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees do believe in the resurrection from the dead. And I'm betting that the Sadducees have used this argument with the Pharisees, and none of the Pharisees have been able to give them an answer yet. And so they think they've got something solid that Jesus isn't going to be able to answer, and yet he still does answer them. Um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just as, as we're looking at this, and some of you are, are fairly new to, to the scripture and, and who all these different groups are that we're talking about, maybe I should just spend a moment and just kind of identify who these different people are. And I can't do a lot of depth into that because there's not a lot of depth to go digging into. Um, the Bible is basically our biggest authority on identifying these different groups. Uh, when you go into history, there's actually very little written about who the Pharisees were. Apparently the Pharisees themselves didn't call themselves Pharisees. And so when you go looking through the Jewish writing, there's no group that identified themselves as Pharisees that wrote about what they believed. And so we have to basically go by what other people said about this particular group. Um, but there's a little bit that we can see. So the Pharisees, basically just an, a religious sect of the, the Jews, they're noted for promoting the oral traditions as opposed to just the written word. Um, that they believed these oral traditions were handed down from Moses and were considered to be the words of God. So they were just the oral tradition was considered to be just as authoritative as the written scriptures. And we know that that can kind of create some problems in religious people, right? I think if you go to certain denominations, maybe Catholic, for instance, they put just as much um, emphasis on the tradition of the church as they do on the scripture. And so if those two contradict, they're, they're just as likely to go with the tradition over the scripture because they put just as much emphasis on that. It's just as valid as the scripture. And there's, there's a problem there, right? You can, you can create anything you want to discredit the scripture if you know, I'm going to establish this tradition. And oral traditions are like that. And so here's a problem that we have with the Pharisees. And really what we see is the Pharisees are this very influential, religious, kind of a elite Jews who are getting this position of authority within the, we call it the church, but they didn't call it the church, but we'll call it that. 
but they're, it's like they're the leaders and influencers within the church. And the issues that Jesus, we see Jesus dealing with is that they're establishing these rules, and we've dealt with a couple of them, where they have bypassed the law with their traditions. And they uphold these traditions so high that they, they've forgotten God. <laughs> they've forgotten the purpose behind all of it. And it's just a matter of they're trying to look spiritual, and yet their hearts are hard and cold towards God. Um, the other aspects of the Pharisees is that they're a political group. They're using their religious influence to control and manipulate the people and their governing leaders to carry out their political agenda. And that's all really tied in with um, controlling Jews, right? Like that was controlling the people um, and controlling the identity of God's people. And then they're also, and all these things kind of tie together. It becomes a social movement where they're attempting to control the way that people lived within the Jewish society. And we see that, I don't think we've looked at it in Matthew, um, but there's where you, Jesus healed the blind man that was blind from his birth, and the Jews weren't, the, the Pharisees aren't happy about this, and what they do is they try to manipulate the family and threaten to kick the family out of the church. So they're controlling how people act and live and respond to their authority through this social networking system. So all of this is just control. But it's a religious control that isn't God-centered. It's, it's just this outward appearance. Oh, I don't mean. <laughs> yeah, weird. It's not like that at, at all today. Um, the Sadducees are, and here, I think this is probably our biggest difference that we we're going to look at here this morning, was this thing of they didn't hold to the oral traditions. They held only to the written Word of God, which is a good thing, but apparently they didn't study it well enough because they didn't believe they didn't believe in the, the resurrection. They didn't believe in things like uh, angels and, and demons, um, and so they've got some odd doctrinal issues that the Pharisees actually had right, even though their attitude towards them were, were wrong. Um, but it appears that. The Sadducees are more political than they were religious leaders. There's a religious aspect to it where they have these certain things, but um, they're trying to be more influential politically than, than they were religiously. And then this other group that was mentioned was the Herodians. And we don't see a lot of that in Scripture, but apparently this is just a group who actually were promoting... Herod as the ruler over Israel, over the Jews. And so Herod is the Roman king who had influence and leadership over them. And so they're trying to um, submit under the Roman authority. And that's a, in opposition to the other Jews would have preferred somebody from the line of David as their king, right? And so there's a whole bunch of political mess going on, and these groups would all be infighting all the time, except when it came to Jesus. 
It's like they found something to unite over in Jesus because he opposed all of them. He was, he just created problems for every one of these groups. Um, and there were problems with every one of these groups that needed to be dealt with. So I don't know if that helped anybody understand it, who these different groups are, but there, there you have it in a nutshell. But again, so here we get to this point in verse 23, which is probably the biggest doctrinal issue is here come the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection. And so this is something that the different groups would have argued about. And like I said, chances are these Pharisees have used this argument, or sorry, the Sadducees have used this argument with the Pharisees and couldn't, they probably couldn't answer this which is why they're coming to Jesus thinking that this is the argument that's going to trip him up. And I won't read through that argument again, but basically what it is is in the law, if a man marries a woman, and we're obviously we're thinking the oldest son of a family, and he dies, his yet next youngest brother is to take that wife and raise children up for the older brother. And so they create this scenario where we have seven brothers and it went right through the whole line, all of them with one wife and they all die and no kids. And now, you think about that. This is a group that openly does not believe in the resurrection. And at the end of this story, and this is where they think they're going to snag Jesus, right? He's like, Therefore, verse 28, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Like, that's a tough question, right? If that was the extent of your knowledge. And I can imagine the Pharisees didn't have a good answer for that. Jesus has no problem with this at all. And verse 29, he says, and said, Jesus answered and said unto them, you do err. <laughs> you got a problem in your thinking because <laughs> you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You got two problems. <laughs> One, you don't know the scriptures, and two, you don't understand the power of God. God, if God designed the system, he's not limited by the system. <laughs> it's, I remember my first summer working at the Bible camp, um, one of the, the teen boys comes to me with this unsolvable problem. If God can do anything, can God create an object so big that he can't lift it? Like, wow, that's a... <laughs> if, I say, <laughs> if I say yes, well, then God can't do anything. And if I say no, then God... Well, okay, we've limited God. But God's the one that created the stuff in the first place. He created the rules of physics that... And the logic that you're using, God does not work outside of his own systems. <laughs> when he plays something into action, he creates something, he doesn't do anything outside of that. It's impossible for God to lie, is what the scripture says. No, God can't do anything. God's limited by his own goodness and his own perfection. <laughs> Perfection doesn't do imperfection, right? So, yes, God's limited in, in that 
God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot do wrong. So, yeah, there's limits on God. And when he creates a limit, he doesn't go outside of that limit. And so, yeah, there, there's an answer to it. It's, it's beyond our, our logic quite often. And, but that's where these guys are, is they think that they are created this logic problem that is unsolvable. But Jesus, you got two problems in your way of thinking here. One is that you don't know the scriptures, and the other is that you don't understand who God is. And so we're going to look at this issue of them not knowing the scriptures a little bit. Second um, Peter chapter 3 describes these people and many people today, of course. Second Peter 3 verse 16 says, we'll get back up just to, to verse 15, I guess. An account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. And rest with a W, not with an R, <laughs> as in they're wrestling with the scriptures. They're twisting and they're manipulating the scriptures, trying to make it fit what they believe, as opposed to, to adjusting what they believe to what the scripture says. And this is Peter. Remember Peter, the apostle? <laughs> the guy that Jesus spent so much time with and who was the foundation of the church in the beginning? Um, that Peter that has that direct... He, he was, you know, he, here's a, a writer of scripture himself, and he's describing what Paul writes, that in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, we're acknowledging that when we read the Bible, there's some things in here that are hard to understand. And so we can look back to the Old Testament law and see this instance where these I'll get it wrong every time I say it. The Sadducees um, come up with this problem with the law if there is a resurrection because now we've got seven brothers that all shared one wife and when we're resurrected in eternity, well, which one of us gets the wife? And these things are they're, they're hard to understand. There's many things in Paul's writings. Uh, we're, we're into some discussions in our Bible study and going over some issues that is like, there's some things in here that are hard to understand and we need to kind of, we need to dig and sort through these things. But we need to be careful not to become what Peter is saying here and becoming those people who are wrestling with the scriptures, twisting them to fit what we think it ought to say rather than adjusting what I think to what it actually says. And so we need to, to really be diligent to make sure 
that we're understanding what it says and not trying to make it say what we think it ought to. And this is a problem with all of us. We all come in with some preconceived ideas of, of who God is and what God is like and what he expects of us and how he expects us to live. And when we come in with these ideas in our head and we'll go to one verse and we'll see what we want to see in that verse, but sometimes we're ignoring 10 other verses that speak something differently and we need to, to relook at that verse that we think supports what we're trying to say and look at what its context is and what the intent of that verse is and fix our thinking to match what the scripture says. We need to do a little bit more studying and a little less wrestling with the scriptures, trying to twist them into submission into what we think they ought to say. And so we get to this spot in Matthew 22 where this unsolvable problem ends up to Jesus, no problem at all. But we see a couple of things in here. It's verse 31 and 32 says, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, here's the real issue, right? Says, Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? You think about that sentence for half a second. Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? That's the words in this book. You're reading what was spoken to you by God. This is God's word. This is what God spoke to us. And we can read it and know God. We can know God's words. This is him speaking to us. So many times, like, how many Christians feel like, I can't hear God's voice. God never pick up his word and start reading what he has said to you. Because this is where we get what God says. This is where we need to learn who God is. And so, have you not read which was spoken unto you by God? And so verse 32, it says, I am the God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of, sorry, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. past, present, past tense of a word in scripture has meaning. <laughs> the Bible said, I am the God of, not I was the God of. And Jesus makes the point is that present tense statement of a past event indicates something important for us to learn. We can learn some depth of scripture just by reading and believing the actual exact word on the page. I am the God of Abraham, and Jesus comes to the conclusion that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, when God says that long after Abraham has died, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, well, then Abraham must still be alive somewhere in existence for God to continue to be his God. We are so shallow, I'm speaking to me, <laughs> so shallow in my ability to read and understand simple language 
that we don't, and here's, these are educated people, these are leaders in Israel, aren't getting what the scripture says through very simple <laughs> words. I am the God of Abraham, present tense. Even though Abraham died many years ago, he is still the God. And therefore, I can conclude that Abraham does exist somewhere. Even though nowhere in Scripture, in the Old Testament books that they're looking at at the time, it didn't ever refer to Abraham in an eternal state. We see Jesus revealing that as he's describing things in the New Testament. We get a bigger picture of it through some of these things, but there's this, there's things we can learn from scripture just by looking at the actual words on the page and believing what it says. Um, I wrote this somewhere much. I think I wrote it. <laughs> there's a, there's a, oh, it is, it's right there what they call the golden rule of biblical interpretation. And I've heard it in different ways, but it says, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you end in nonsense. And that's so much modern biblical scholarship is digging for something that's not there. <laughs> and they're creating doctrinal ideas that scripture doesn't represent or doesn't hold. And we need to be careful that we're not looking for something that isn't in the, the book. We need to take it for what it says, especially when it is clear and understandable in its direct written form. We need to, don't need to look for anything deeper or different than what it says if it makes sense in what it says. Anyway. We need to be careful that we don't form conclusions that aren't found either in the text or supported in the rest of Scripture. And we compare Scripture with Scripture, making sure that when we study this text, I'm comparing this particular text with what the rest of Scripture says about that topic. And so I get the whole picture of what the Bible is saying about something rather than just focusing in one little spot and maybe misunderstanding the context of how that applies and it's not the overall picture of what that teaching is. There's a, wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I, the Joel Osteen book, Your Best Life Now, I think is what it was titled. Um, it gets its idea and in some form or another form, I think a lot of Christians get that concept in their head that we can live our best life now, that in some way, this, is, this life is where God has, is what God has for us and that we can experience fullness in this life. And really, that's not what the scripture is teaching. I'll just, I'm going to read just a statement that Somebody else wrote concerning it, and it kind of says it. It says, your best life now. To say that life on this earth is the best you can have is absolutely true. 
if you're not a Christian. <laughs> the non-Christian lives his best life in the here and now because his next life is one of no hope, no joy, no meaning, no satisfaction, and no relief from eternal suffering. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ will spend eternity in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that description is used by Jesus no less than five times in the Gospels to describe the miserable existence of those who were thrust into it at the moment of their death. So seeking to enjoy life while they can makes perfect sense for them because they really are living their best life now. Their next life will be truly dreadful. For the Christian, however, life here, no matter how good it is, is nothing compared to the life that awaits us in heaven. Amen. The glories of heaven, eternal life, righteousness, joy, peace, perfection, God's presence, Christ's glorious companionship, rewards, and all else God has planned, which no eye has seen or no ear heard, is the Christian's heavenly inheritance. And it will cause even the best life on earth to pale in comparison. Even the richest, most successful person on earth will eventually age, sicken, and die. And his wealth cannot prevent it, nor can his wealth follow him into the next life. So why would you incur be encouraged to live your best life now? The Bible says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's in Matthew 6. <clears throat> we need to understand that this life, we're, we're going to get rid of this body, this, the body that Jacob complains about, <laughs> that has problems. I, I don't look to God to fix all of my physical problems in this life. Because this is a corrupt body. There's, it's contaminated with the world. It's contaminated by sin. It has to go. We need to look for that blessed hope. There's a, there's a new body coming. There's a, a resurrection to a an incorruptible body Amen. where there will be no sin corrupting it and ruining that body. And so that's what our hope is, is looking forward to the next life, not trying to get perfection in this one. Because we look around and... I don't know if you've looked around much, but there's not a lot of perfection going on around here. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and if you want to, if you're turning there, turn also to 1 Peter chapter 1. So 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Peter 1. I'll just 
just let the pages stop turning. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. It says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> right? If, if it's in this life that we're looking for fulfillment in Christ, if that's the end game, we are of all men most miserable. Amen. But look what 1 Peter chapter 1 says says, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom Though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. There's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope lies. It's not in, a, not in God fixing our problems here and now. He even in this passage where he's pointing us to a future, an inheritance in heaven, he says, the trial of your faith being much more precious. And like we're going to have, verse 6, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations and the trial of your faith, we're going to have problems in this life. As a believer in Christ, you're promised <laughs> that that will be the result is that we're going to have problems because of being a believer in Christ. But we have a hope beyond this life. We, we know we can't overcome in this life. We're not going to overcome the flesh and achieve perfection here. But that's waiting for us. We are going to overcome it through Christ. And he's going to give us a new body, and a new home, a new reality beyond this life, a perfection. And we can look, blessed be the God and Father, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We have a lively hope. Because <laughs> there's a life out there that's beyond anything that you can imagine here on this earth. Coming here this morning, I'm driving... And we're between downpours and dry roads. And little looks like a little bit of snow mixed into that rain. And I'm watching all the trucks pulling fishing boats heading out into the bush. I'm thinking, how often is May Long Weekend absolutely the most miserable weather of the entire spring? 
if this and the joys of this world is your hope, <laughs> what he said, <laughs> what hope is there? If that's the best you can get, there's a hope beyond this world. That's what we're looking for. The problem with the Sadducees, they didn't understand scripture, but they don't understand who God is. <laughs> they don't understand this is what God wants for us. God's, God's grace in giving us a way to achieve a lively hope <laughs> of eternal joy, that's, that's the God we serve. That's the God that I love, is that God. Not this incapable God of resolving these philosophical problems. That's not my God. That's not the God of the Bible. People's problem is that there's a tendency to project our inability to understand something onto God as if it's a limitation or inadequacy of God. The inadequacy is in us, not in God. We can see that in the way that Jesus answers this unsolvable problem that is brought to him, and he has absolutely no problem at all giving a, a complete answer to it. It's not God's inadequacy, it's our inadequacy that's the problem. We need to realize that when we don't understand something, that we think that there's a problem with God or there's a problem with Scripture. The problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with Scripture. It, the problem is these two things, is our lack of knowledge of the Scripture and our lack of understanding of who God is. We need to make sure that we understand that those are the problems and that these things can be overcome. And God's given us his spirit for that purpose and we have a hope for those things that we can't quite figure out in this life we have that lively hope where the answer is coming right and anyway, let's pray lord we're just we're glad that we have a hope beyond this world today lord um, a hope beyond trying to live our best life now that you have an eternity waiting for us filled with joy and peace and love and things that we can't even imagine, Lord. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day that we get to see that with you and we get to see your glory and be in your presence, Lord, in a body that's not corrupted by this world of sin, Lord. And so, Lord, we just ask that you just help us to understand these things, that we would be encouraged by this. And, Lord, we just commit this time again to you in Jesus' name. Amen.